Hello and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here. And I'm Brent Sanders. We are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies. Yes, sir. And it's summertime. And summertime means one thing, talking to sellers. (laughs) It it seems like, I don't know if it's, is it your take or is it, am I just making this up? It does feel like in the summertime, people want to sell their businesses more. I feel like there's Hmm. an uptick in conversations, but maybe it's, People realize like, oh, I'm stuck inside working on this business. I should sell it. That's funny. I never thought of like a cyclicality to it. <laughs> I, I, like like Christmas time, Thanksgiving, people want to sell before like the end of the year. That's sure. definitely something there. Summertime, maybe. I guess there's yeah. a lot of conversations. Yeah, it definitely feels like an update. Or it's the market plummeting yeah. into internal demise. But I guess let's start there. Let's start, I mean, what are your... As far as so today is June 10th, 2022, and you know, the market's way down, crypto's way down, everything's way down, the recession's supposed to hit, and you know, they're apparently we're already in a recession, inflation's crazy high. There's all these doom and gloom projections. Oh, one thing that I read today was all, all the you know, a large cohort of SPACs are down like 95%. So, like, you know, all the the tomfoolery that's been happening in the markets for the last two years is kind of coming home to roost. And like, I'm not surprised. I, I think it's actually, again, I, I maintain it's still healthy. But the question for you is, you feel like it's good or bad for, you know, B2B SaaS? So it's kind of nice in our world is like, if you look at Stripe, you wouldn't know that there's anything different. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, everything's the same basically week to week in like this small business world. So if anything, I think over the next year or so, if it's actually a downturn, it should be great for us. Like startups struggling to raise follow-on financing, money harder to come by. Like we should see more opportunities. Like we're kind of well mm. positioned to do that. But yeah, I have no predictions on the market. I also just try not to look at it. Uh, <laughs> if you don't sell anything, you're not realizing any losses. So sure, sure, sure if it matters sure. much. Yeah, I mean, I the thing that makes me nervous is like companies going under. Like that's one of our across all businesses and pretty much every B two B SaaS. There's always you know just companies going out of business. Yeah. And that's a, you know, a, a churn driver, but yeah, I, I feel like there's always, I always get excited about the possibility of, you know, like thriving during winter, like thriving during a difficult period. And I think that's where, you know, the smaller, leaner companies, which is us, doesn't get much more smaller and leaner than us. It's like, those are your opportunities to kind of step up into a, a next league. And I, I experienced that during the last downturn of what, 2006, financial crisis, like I was starting a business or, or kind of just in the beginning of growth stages of business then. And, and it thrived. It was just weird. Was, I think there are weird dynamics that pop up that smaller companies can take advantage of, such as at the time it was, you know, we were a software development agency. People wouldn't hire developers or, or weren't keeping people on payroll. So they're way more interested in, in hiring contractors. And we were able to just you know, thrive and build tons of hours and sell work really easily versus when things are, the economy is going great. Those clients were, you know, just hiring people left and right, which I think is kind of a weird thing. It's the one thing that's mystifying kind of the market right now. And I'm not trying, again, not trying to predict anything or understand economics, but it is kind of a wild time to be alive of like you went through a pandemic, it fucked up the supply chain and, you know, everything else along with it. So it does seem uh, to be a fun time to be, you know, buying and building businesses in the sense of it's not going to be boring. It's not going to be boring. Yeah. 
a churn, I think that's a concern, right? Is like how mission critical are these B2B software companies? Because if they could be cut to save money, like that's concerning or like depending on who the end customer is, whether they're going out of business, you know, that could really be an uptick in churn. But yeah, hopefully we're buying well and these are mission critical companies. Yeah, I, 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 I can't imagine. Like of the services that we provide, they are ones that are not really on the chopping block in, in my opinion. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but like, Invoicing for these businesses, I mean, to switch an invoice provider and the other invoice providers were still among the cheapest options. And then with database backups, it's like, sure, you could pare back on the number of resources, but you're not going to decide not to do database backups any further. Like if that's your your part of your, your offering or part of what you do, it's a pretty dangerous thing to decide to skimp on. Yeah. And it's like, this is why software is so appealing is like the value that provides, like the safety, losing all your backups is just so high relative to the cost. It just doesn't make sense to get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so excited about seeing what happens over the next year, two years. I think it's, this is a cycle for, you know, it's going to go on for a couple of years. And I think it's, I'm optimistic that we're going to have an opportunity to thrive. I like to hear it. I like it. What else Unlike crypto. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted it. We, we've talked about I was thinking back, we had a gentleman on who kind of gave us a primer. This is probably like a year ago on maybe it's eight months on what was his name? Jason about, Hitchcock. Jason, Jason Hitchcock kind of taught us the basics about crypto and, and just kind of thinking like we're the, an update on that, that space. Obviously it's completely cratered. And again, I think it's like a healthy thing. This is my take on it is like, this is a healthy sort of, cleansing and my hope is i don't know if you saw the news i think it was just yesterday that so the stable coin terra we i think we talked about in a prior prior episode but you know basically depegged was supposed to be pegged to the dollar and you know it, but now they're finding that the the founder sold 80 million dollars of, of terra like a week or two before this happened so i think the government at least the u.s government is going to get involved in some of this hopefully clean up the space a little bit like i think there's just a ton of crap out there that's mixed in with some projects that are seriously promising. Like I'm still a believer that all this stuff is going to be utilized and be like the way that that people transact for digital services, like hosting, like the resources your application uses, the resources that your business uses. Like I believe in the project, I believe in the ideas, but I think it's it's going to be good to see some some consolidation and, and cleanup. What do you think? I mean, it's just, there's always a lot of volatility there. So I don't think it's shocking when it goes up and down, you know, 50% or more. Mm -hmm. I, I believe in it long-term. So I guess my warning to people would be like, don't gamble on like the little coins. Either <laughs> this is all going to zero or it's all going to be great. And like, just focus on basically Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, maybe Solana could be in there the big ones, like the blue chips and, you know, park your money there. Don't look at it, you know, revisit it in five years if you believe in it long-term. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of folks that, yeah, just made, made a ton of money and easy come, easy go is how I feel about it. That's, I mean, that's just how these, these things were. As you said, there's a ton of volatility. So check on your friends, check on your crypto friends, make sure they're, they're still, they're still being productive. Yeah. I mean, those are the saddest ones. When Luna went to effectively zero, there's like a bunch of suicides. And it's like, oh my God, really? Oh yeah. Over a dozen, I think people were saying. I mean, a lot of people put their life savings in there because they were getting 20% returns. They thought it was super safe. And it's like, 
even if you lost all your money, like maybe just chill out, like go for a walk outside, you'll get money again. Yeah. It's a yeah. sad situation. That's super sad. That's super sad. I had no idea. Man, I wouldn't even brought this up had I known it's like the stock market crash. Yeah. Uh, man. All right. Well, way to, way to dampen the mood, Colin. I um, didn't bring I this up. I didn't want to make this a crypto <laughs> podcast. Yeah. I just thought it's it's ancillary. We've talked about it in the past, but you know, in other news, I've been I've been doing a new schedule. I don't know if I've told you about this, and I, I want to get your thoughts on it because you're like the sleep. Have you ever heard of biphasic sleep? Like instead of sleeping one time a night, you sleep twice during the day. Yeah, biphasic, or I think bimodal is the other thing, or uh, bimodal poly sleep is the other thing people do, where it's like every five hours they sleep for twenty minutes. I've never done any of this stuff, but yeah, I've heard of people attempting it. Is it regarded as generally unhealthy? That's my sense, but because everyone's like eight hours is the best thing you can do. I think most studies would support that. Is this what you're attempting to do? You're like, you know, sleep less at night and then an after in the day. So we've had a little, another mishap. So we moved to Cleveland from Chicago to be closer to family. I've got a small family, you know, two kids under three and we've had full-time childcare for a while, but we had a, a, a mishap. I won't get too far into it, but in short, we we found a new nanny because our other nanny told us she was going to transition into a different career and found a transition date. And then she like let us know two months early that she's giving her two weeks notice. So effectively leaving us without childcare. And so Elizabeth and I have to figure out how are we going to do childcare without you know, external help. And, and you were like, well, why don't you just get daycare? And so let me nip that in the bud right away. Called every daycare in town. Everybody's got a wait list. That's that I want to send my kids to like the, the third nuclear option here is like, you know, you find a daycare that has space and it's like, you know, dropping your kids off in somebody's basement with their kids. So there's plenty of those options. So we decided, and we had this as a backup contingency plan. Let's do, let's split the childcare. Let's make it work. Cause our son takes a nap from one to four each day. So here's the schedule. Wake up at 6 a.m. or 5.30 early. So the kids sleep until 7.30 or 8. So basically get your workout correspondence done for an hour or two there. Do childcare from nine to noon. And that this is my wife and I, we switch, switch this off and either nap or work between nap time, one to four, and then childcare Again, we switch off. Either I do the morning or the afternoon and vice versa. So then there's a four to eight slot. And then you do that kind of every day. And then the other part here, in order to kind of still have time to make up for, is you work essentially from you know 8.30 till 11.30 or midnight. And so you're not getting like eight hours of sleep because you're getting up, you know, so you're getting roughly five to six hours in one go and then making up the rest in a nap time during the day which it's like I'm calling the power dad or working dad schedule. So I've been, I've been doing it a little bit. Like the other thing about it is we actually found some childcare. So I only get to try this experiment out one or two more weeks, but uh, so far it actually has been uh, really effective. And uh, again, I've only done it like four days now, but the, the way it's been working is like, I'm super constrained on what I can do. So I have to be incredibly effective with the time I do have. So obviously leveraging has been really strong and, but just like constraining myself. Cause I think one of the things I've suffered from is almost having like not wasting time, but maybe focusing on things that 
you know, I could have someone else doing or leveraging. Yeah. And that's what everyone says when they, once they have kids, like they didn't know how productive they could be in a short period of time until that happens. Um, it definitely creates anxiety. I would tell you, like, I'm nervous that, oh, I'm not going to get all this stuff done, but you just have to kind of like, just be in the moment. And at the end of the day, like number one priority is, you know, make good humans, you know, the work part of it is definitely, you know, part of my fulfillment, my, you know, I want them to even also have exposure to at some point, you know, the type of work that I do. But yeah, I, I'm, we're trying this out. So basically does napping throughout the day, whether you have kids or not, is that going to, to help me, you know, basically not get enough sleep during the, the first session. I have a feeling this is probably not healthy, but so far it's working. Uh, I mean, naps are real. They definitely count as sleep, whether they're like, is that the best way to do it? Probably not, but it's certainly better than, you know, sleeping less than you need to and not napping during the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, sure. There's like, you know, special ways to do it. So you don't want to do it too long. You don't want to really fall into deep sleep. You want to keep it shorter, like 30 minutes or less. Uh, Huberman, Andrew Huberman is like one of these you know, biohacking experts. He has a podcast and a super long one on sleep and whether you're supposed to do it or not, or whether you're supposed to do naps or not. Mm. Yeah. I, I did it for a long time. I took naps every day for like high school, college, and maybe a little after. I used to be all about it. I could still nap really easily, but I kind of mostly stopped years ago now. Yeah. The other thing about this so when you were in college were you getting up early for practices and stuff like were you doing like there was almost two days in your day like and that's the thing I'm realizing so there's like the early before noonday and then there's like this siesta that happens and then there's like afternoon and late night that kind of happens yeah it's definitely feel I mean you feel like you started a new day yeah. so it was a situation where you just you stay up late for like no real reason like just because you're in college and then you have to wake up early for like class or like a conditioning workout or something. And then you're just tired and you take a nap, you know, after lunch, one, two, 3 PM, something like that. And then it's like a new day. You have more energy to like go back and work out or you know, do homework. Anyways, that's, that's the schedule for the first couple of weeks of this summer. You know, I am realizing like now that I've moved somewhere where there's, you know, it's, it's more kid driven. It's like once school let out this week and it's a massive change. I never noticed this living in the city because it's like yeah. school, what's school? But like <laughs> everything changes. You definitely see like a whole different group of people. You different, you, everyone's patterns change. All the other adults and parents are kind of working through this. So I think the thing that I'm finally coming to grips with is that like, I don't have full control over my schedule and like, I have to be at the mercy of some of these other things at times. And that has been a, a challenge in, in having kids, but yeah, as long as there's willingness to like overcome that, right? And like, okay, I can be tough and, you know, change my schedule. Like we, if you recall, we were working on a, a project where, or, you know, business that had operations in Asia and we we're staying up, you know, two to three days until what, 11 o'clock at sometimes like three hours of meeting starting at 9 p.m. or 8 p.m. It's like that takes its toll as well. But if you yeah. work around it, it's like you, you can do it. Yeah, that was not fun. <laughs> what, what else do you want to cover here? Uh, you got this nice list you put together. Yeah, you know, I've been working on... All right, so part of my focus for this summer is to start putting out more content, start like posting more or just in the sense of just raising profile a little bit, like sharing what I'm working on. And so 
I'm thinking about like, why do this? And it's like, do, do I want to be a thought leader? Right. Like that's just a general like career thing, healthy thing to probably be doing is like, let people know what you're up to. I mean, we do this on the podcast, but never do I promote it. Never do I share, Oh, I was on this podcast with Colin and we've done how many episodes. So I I've just been a, a, a total introvert when it comes to posting online. And so I've been looking at David, thinking about taking it. It's just, I don't want to wait until I think the next cohort September, but I've been reading up on his method. I signed up for his uh, 50 days newsletter, which is super cool. Essentially, you get an email for 50 days straight with like things, you know, and exercises to do. But I, I have this concept in my head because it's like, okay, well, what's your style? What's your personal brand? What's your like thing that you'll have a monopoly on? I think a central part of my, my monopoly is being a little goofy and I'm, like, is our business memes on LinkedIn? Is that like a viable form of thought leadership? Uh, have I seen? I haven't seen as many memes on LinkedIn, but LinkedIn is like so starved for good content. It seems like <laughs> if you post anything decent, like everyone else, you know, has a boss, they're kind of afraid to post, and we don't really have that, so we can post whatever we want as long as you don't piss off like an LP or a potential, you know, partner or something. But, um, yeah. I, so I started cross-posting. There's all these services that let you write and then post it to Twitter, LinkedIn, and kind of wherever you want. And so I started doing it. And it's been great. Like, it's just basically doubled my audience. And anecdotally, like, I just went to my college reunion and talked with a bunch of, like, older folks that are on LinkedIn, obviously not on Twitter. And they're like, oh, I, I've been seeing all your content. Really love it. Like, keep it up. And so it seems like the reach is, you know, great cross-posting there. Yeah. So I think that's, like, step one of the Perel guidance is like, find, find the medium. And I think LinkedIn's the the way I I can't, I can't get down. I know you're big on Twitter. You publish a lot of stuff, but I just can't stand the, the audience is really awful. Like you have to do a great job. You spend a lot of time curating, like in blocking. And, you know, I've just seen people get kind of ripped up for, for posting things or saying things or just even like benign things that get really kind of awful responses. And so I'm, I just, I don't really want to spend time there. I don't really know if it's effective either, but uh, I know people yeah. can make it work. It's certainly effective. Whether you want to deal with the people that, you know, come from it, I guess is a question that is nice about LinkedIn is like, you know, bosses are looking over people's shoulders. So people are much better <laughs> behaved than they are on Twitter at least. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to start working on my, my dank business memes then. Yeah, there you go. You know, whether you should take David Perel's course or not, like it's gotten really expensive, which, you know, kudos to him. I think he's done a great job, but there's this other course that's like the other competing good writing course. Dickie Bush started it and it's ship 30 for 30. We see a lot of people with like little ships on their Twitter profile and that one's significantly cheaper, but I think very similar as far as content that people seem to like it. Cool. Yeah. So like walk me through like, have you put a lot of thought into your publishing? Like, walk me through your your mindset. Like, why do you, I guess what the thing that I'm stuck with is like, why am I writing this? And then number two, what's somebody going to actually get out of this? Because you've done these like long form research projects and like, why, I guess, could you answer those two questions? Like, why are you doing it? And what are you hoping people get out of it? So I do it partially for myself. Like, I just think writing is the best way to like crystallize your thinking. And then I, I do enjoy just the wordplay or like the beauty of language. So a lot of it is just like practicing your copywriting and you know enjoying that. And then what do I get out of it? Like every time anything I do goes like semi-viral on Twitter, 
we get a bunch of inbound LP interest. I get some deal flow from it. And then just like cool, interesting people doing similar stuff reach out and I get to talk with them. So that's not like immediately fruitful, but building your network over long-term certainly is. And then mm. I also have this course. So anytime, you know, something does well, I get more interest in the course and people buy it. So that's like a more immediate monetary benefit, but yeah. it, it's been great. You know, I highly recommend it for sure. So the, the other format that I've seen that's popular, there's a gentleman that we, we both worked with on a, one of the portfolio companies of our, the venture fund we were at that has like this sort of really simple style on LinkedIn. Like it's like a sentence and then two paragraphs and then a sentence or like two, two line breaks. Right. And it's like, you know, when I meet with somebody and I can see that they're inexperienced, then all they got to do, it's like this, this sort of like, he's teaching a lesson short form. What would you call that? Like, you know what I'm talking about? People called it bro poetry. I thought that was the funniest (laughs) way to phrase it. That's good. Bro poetry. Okay. Yeah. Broetry. Uh, there's definitely like, it's just a formula, like what works on Twitter, what works on LinkedIn. It's this like spaced out saying something initially, like kind of inflammatory. So people want to dive in deeper uh, using numbers certainly helps. So like entertain me or like teach me how to make money are like the two big ways to do it. So like tell a really good story or like, this is how you make a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, but then I'm thinking, okay, so in his case, in this gentleman that we were talking about, he's, he posts every single day, maybe twice a day. It's similar things. You know. Who is it? Could you say the name or are you like dodging it for some reason? We're talking about Alex Newman. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know Alex, right? Yeah, of course. I, I didn't know who you were talking about. Okay. Yeah. So Alex has been posting since leaving that company. He's, he posts like one or once or twice a day, like some story about, I, you know, I came in, I saw this salesperson, they needed this training and it's like, I knew, but it was, it's kind of like stream of consciousness a little bit. And if you're in a conversation with him and he was telling you this, you'd be kind of glazed over as my, as my feeling. I was reading because what I heard from indirectly from him was it works really, really well. Like he's got, you know, people reaching out, he's selling a course, like, and I'm not trying to, to sell a course. I don't plan on setting one up, but like, using it for networking, people, letting people know what you're up to in order to kind of, you know, increase your, your visibility. And I think that's valuable, but it, I just feel like goofy. So I'm finding my own voice. We'll see if I get there. What I think, yeah, like when I, I read some of these things, I always get back to like the, the Twitter think boy, like the, why is it that Twitter is this platform for like, you know, advice, like, who asked anybody for these like life pro tips and, and whatnot? Like I get it coming from, you know, Elon Musk or Bill Gates or somebody who's like, okay, they they figured something out, but like a 26 year old, you know, C CEO at a startup, I don't really like want, want to hear their sleep schedule advice or whatever. I don't know. I'm, I'm an old man. I'm fucking like jaded, but I'm trying to stay away from that content and stick towards, cause I feel like, there's an element of, to all of this stuff that's just parroting. It's like people go on these platforms because they impose things that they think people want to read because that's what they've seen other people do. It's like, you know, going back to my music days, people being like recording artists and it's like, oh, you're just making rock and roll. That sounds like your influences and everybody's made up of just their influences and their influences. So I'm trying to think of super original content without freaking people out. So yeah, I mean, if your goal is super original content, I think you're never going to produce anything <laughs> realistically. Yeah. 
And, and yeah. that's just like the whole world is just, you know, mashing together your experiences, your influences, you know, applying it in a slightly different way. So like on Twitter, what works? Like you could just look at all the big like fitness accounts. And it's always like the top five ways to do this, the five mistakes mm -hmm. I made doing this. And all you do is you take that format and you could apply it to like, you know, managing developers in India or something like that. And that's really all it is. It's just a formula that works in other places and nothing is original. It's just like a mashup of other things. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see if I can grow my audience on LinkedIn. We'll see how it goes. But my sense is, I think the best advice I've kind of, after spending the last week or so looking at like a, hatching a strategy, the Perel concept of like establishing your own sort of monopoly, like no one can be you. And so I think that's the thing I've connected the most with is like, try to figure out, you know, what, what my voice is. And, and that way it's, you're never like parroting other people's content. You're, you may be parroting the, the form like, Hey, here's a, you know, the, the broetry format, but at least it's the message that's within my own. Yeah. And your experiences kind of twist on it. Uh, the other, like, do you need a course? Yeah. I think you asked me this and it's like all everyone that has a course, like all their content is basically public. It's like on Twitter or they have blog posts or something. And I think what these cohort based courses give you is like a community of people trying to do it at the same time. And that leads to just accountability. Like people want to do it. Like people sign up for my course. They want to buy a business. They go through the whole course and then I follow up with them. It's like, do you buy a business? Oh no, you know, I couldn't find the time to do the search or something. So I'm going to launch a cohort-based course for how to buy a small business. I'm pretty pumped to like get people to meet each other, build a community around it and like actually get more people to follow through and to buy a business. I think that's why, you know, David Perel keeps raising the price. And then he has this like deep community aspect to it. And it becomes much less about the actual content of the course and much more so like the cohort of like going through something together and actually getting results from that. It's been really frustrating having a course and being like, not that many people actually follow through and you know do what you're trying to teach them to do. I know. I know that I think I brought this up on a past podcast. We it was a, somebody that we had talked to in the audio education space. And he's like, he, at the time he was selling these CDs, motivational or, you know, course-based learning over CD. And he's like, yeah, half the time, you know, you can send blank CDs and no one would know. Like people, <laughs> yeah, that was great. people just buy it. They feel good about it. And then they never, never go into it. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think the course thing is, is interesting, right? Like that's, it's always a little, it can be a red flag. There's courses that like, you know, these people aren't necessarily experts in the space. They're, they're putting their notes in, you know, basically giving you a binder of other people's, you know, match together content as well as their own. The thing that I, I think is like the Holy grail here is like what Rome did is they took like a way of doing something and then rolled that into software. That's the, the, the sort of Holy grail that I would love to get to is like, is there like a, a line of thinking or a space that you're, you're enabling that then a software product, like for example, like rather than you know, I, I have a, let's pretend I have a sales course rather than selling the course, you give the course away, but to use the, the, the method, you use my software. And that's mm -hmm. the thing that is like, uh, that's where I'm trying to think about. It's like, and I'm, I can't, I'm so far away from it. I'm just trying to even write content, but I, I love that idea when you see people execute that. And I think Rome is such a great example of that. It's like, okay, here's a way to do something that they could make a course on, right? They could have 
said, hey, this is the, the method and it's, it's an amalgamation of existing methods. We've done the work to bring all this content together, but they give it away. That's their help docs essentially. And then it's like, okay, now you can use this product that, you know, is, is really neat. I mean, sure, Notion, everybody has these like links features now, but they, they do it in their own special way. So that's what a lot of people have figured out. So a lot of these bigger course creators is like, courses are great, but you have to keep selling them constantly because there's no you know, recurring revenue there. And so mm. what they figure out is that they use it as basically lead gen for software. And mm -hmm. they build in kind of that process into different forms of software. So like there's a cold outbound email guy and he has a bunch of different software that like kind of empowers that. And then this guy, Dickie Bush uh, has this writing course and he started a... SaaS, it's like, oh, I'll cross promote everything to your LinkedIn, your Twitter, your medium. And then he just deeply embeds it into the course and that like, then you build equity over time instead of just constantly trying to bring in new cohorts of people. Yeah. Super interesting. Well, that's, that's my main focus right now. Not main focus. That's one of the, the, the main focuses around, you know, this summer that I'm thinking about it's, I just don't, don't post a lot of content. I got a lot of things to say. It's just I think I get a little too persnickety around the form to your, to your point. If you, it's like making it perfect is the enemy of. So let me put you on the spot. Like, uh, this is your goal. How are you going to make it actionable? Like, what are you going to do you know, every day or every week? My yeah, suggestion so would be uh, like one thread a week and just like, no matter what you're getting one thread out, whether it's amazing, it's just okay. But you, you just have to get into the practice of you know, publishing it. Yeah. I think that's the thing hitting publish is. So actionably it's got to make, it's got to find its way to my schedule. So using this, <laughs> this new schedule that I have is like clearing out and it's not, it takes me a while to start and I think it'll get faster, but at least an hour in the morning and then at least an hour in the afternoon to, and it might be a bit, a bit much, but just, you know, one hour of just note taking one hour of just like outlining and then an hour of actually like cleaning things up and trying to get it into a uh, form. And hopefully that goes down to like 30 minutes a day. Because it, it is hard to, you know, time is precious. There's a lot going on. And, you know, it's hard for me to prioritize writing. But that's the thing. It just, if it's a priority, it's got to end up in your, in your calendar. Yeah, I, I do a similar thing. I try to write every morning before I like doing other stuff. And I, I find it, or I guess I do some at night, but I find the morning is the easiest time to write. I, I find it to be like the hardest thing that I do. And tackling the hardest thing in the morning is you know, the best way to do it. Yeah, I know that feeling for sure. I'm the same way. First thing in the morning, it's like you have the most energy, the most mental, like cognitive energy, and you can kind of steamroll difficult tasks. Cool. Anything else you wanted to cover here in your list? No, that's... No, I, if people are interested in doing my cohort-based course, I have a type form out there. You know, people are filling in interest. I'm going to limit it to 25 spots at this discounted rate. So if you want to apply, you know, get your application in. I think I'll close applications in like a couple of weeks. And then, I don't know, we'll see how the first one goes and then maybe do it quarterly or something. So it's an indie acquisitions course, right? That's the yes. subject matter? Yeah. So Maven is like the company that kind of manages like the running of these cohort-based courses. And so they have a really good, I mean, they teach you how to do it. And they've been reaching out to me. I've been talking to them like since they launched, maybe like six months ago. And I was always hesitant to do it because I was like, I already got this asynchronous course. I did all this work already. But what they kind of taught me is like your lectures could be pre-recorded, and the live sessions can be more like breakout groups or like Q and A's where you actually go over stuff. And that was much more appealing to me than like delivering the same lecture over and over again, just making it live. Yeah. yeah. 
which I didn't want to do. But I'm excited. I'd love to be like much more involved in people's journeys, like buying a business. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. I mean, it'd be awesome if, if folks, you know, sign up and then like, if you could go through and even share, like, just go through, how do you analyze the deals, like live deals? I, I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's cool, but if they're bringing in deals and just say, hey, let's look at this together and just pick it apart, show them how to do the financials, show them how to do the analysis. I mean, that would be really valuable. And, you know, it's hard, you know, you can't say, oh, you're going to acquire a business by the end of this time, but you, it would be really, I think an awesome way to get, if it's 20, 25 people, like ideally they have somewhat similar criteria or even different. And they just, now you've got a network of folks that you can syndicate deals to, or even if it's not your space and you know, somebody from your course, that's like, okay, they're into this sharing deals, with them, which is probably more important than the course content itself is like, if you had 20 people in a group, whether, you know, you want to network with them or not, like that's still valuable once you have a deal or you meet somebody that's not a fit for you, but you want to kind of, you know, circulate that's, that's huge points. Yeah. I am super pumped. I mean, this is what business schools really are. Like the content, the yeah. course or courses are great, but it's really like people in similar life position going through the same experiences. I'm excited. It's like the new form of you know online learning. I always thought it'd be fun to participate in it. So I'm pumped. Cool. Excited to hear how it goes. Uh, thanks. Yeah. I guess until next week, you know, take care, everyone. Take care.